Hello, my friends who listen to futureprimitive.org. I'm very grateful today to be on the phone with F. David Pete, and he's in Italy, and I'm in Santa Fe. Uh, David Pete was born in Waterloo, England, and is a holistic physicist and author who has carried out research in solid-state physics and the foundation of quantum theory. He holds a PhD in physics from the University of Liverpool. For many years, he was associated with physicist and philosopher David Bohm. While living in Canada, Pete organized discussion circles between Western scientists and Native American elders, and while in London, organized a conference between artists and scientists. He has authored and co-authored many books, Synchronicity, The Bridge Between Matter and Mind, Seven Life Lessons of Chaos, Turbulent Mirror, and Gentle Action. His most recent book is A Flickering Reality, Cinema, and the Nature of Reality. He has written on the subject of science, art, and spirituality. He is also the director of the Paris Center for New Learning, which is located near Siena in Tuscany, Italy. I think I'll stop now and um, welcome David Pete. And I'm holding in your in my hands your book, Gentle Action, Bringing Creative Change to a Turbulent World. And I just want to start with a question. Can we build a kinder world for our families, business, society, and ourselves? That's a, an interesting question. Someone had written to me recently about um, you know the various uh, uprisings that have happened you know in, in in the Middle East, Libya, and places like that, and said you know it may be easy to get rid of a regime, but um, can you put something better in its place? And most people know uh, you know a great deal about uh, you know how to get rid of dictators, how to get rid of regimes, but there's really very little guidance and how to create a better world, you know, a better... Uh, so I think that's that's the key question. Uh, a better society, better economics... Yes. A better environment, you know, all of those things. Uh, and, and more, a better life for children growing up in this world. So th- those are all sort of very key questions. Absolutely. And... Uh... It takes me back to uh, being on the barricades in Paris in uh, the 1960s. And so we managed to stop the government, but we had no idea what to do afterwards. So that's like the, uh, the Arab Spring. So speak to us, David Pete, about what we can do one quarter of an inch at a time. Yes, uh, well, you know, in, 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 in the book Gentle Action, it was really, um, the idea um, came to me uh, when I was invited to a conference in Canada by the Royal Society of Canada called, it was called The Cost of Inaction. 
And the idea was that we're facing all these difficulties. We've got to act now. We've got to act immediately. And it occurred to me that, you know, maybe what was called for was a pause. We, we, we don't need to act immediately. Well, there are serious issues. Um, and, but maybe we need to pause and, and look at them and ask what is really going on. And I remember someone objected to me and said, you know, there's a fire out there. We've got to rush out and do something about it. And mm-hmm. my immediate thought was, well, if there was a fire out there, you'd want to know several things before you run out. You want to know what direction is the wind going in? <laughs> you know, where's the, where's the supply of water? There are many things that you'd want to pause and take into consideration before you jumped into action. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I saw how, you know, people were, were taking action, uh, using, you know, looking at aid in di- different countries. Was that really helping? I think another issue maybe you could touch on it, it is the fact that we tend to use <coughs> rather aggressive language. We say we're going to have war on want, we're going to have war on drugs, we're going to have war on poverty. Yes. So we, we use this term war all the time. We, we're going to be aggressive. Um, and there's uh, an author, uh, Joseph Meeker, who wrote a book called uh, The Comedy of Survival, in which he pointed out that in the West we tend to be attracted to tragedy in which the hero battles the fates and gets destroyed. Mm-hmm. But in other cultures... Comedy is favored, and in comedy, authority may be mocked a little bit. The rules may be bent. Sexual identity may be a little more fluid. And at the end of the comedy, it always ends in a marriage. So the comedy ends in something fruitful, and the tragedy ends in death. Mm-hmm. And if we do see you know, global warming and the problems of the environment, if we see these in terms of tragedy, I think maybe we're, we're starting off on the wrong foot. We, we need to to think we need other approaches. And so that's in the book I wrote, I suggested two things. One was called creative suspension, the idea that you don't jump into action. Yes. You, you have a momentary pause in which you try to judge what the situation is. What is it saying to us? What, what is this system trying to tell us? Can we listen to the system rather than having our head full of clever ideas that we're going to impose on, on the system? We're going to go in and take action. What is the system saying to us? And if we listen to it, we can think of a more creative way uh, in which we can interact with the system and bring about a gentle change. So that was the sort of basic philosophy I started with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With uh, the rapid fire of information, um, television, etc., how can we create this pause? this moment of attention that can bring about more useful change? Yes, I think that is difficult because um, with, with, with the social media and all the rest of it, I think you know, the, the brains of young people are changing. I think papers have said that, that they, they structure knowledge in different ways than we older folk do. They're structuring knowledge in different ways. So the idea is, is it possible to... to influence them or to suggest to them that sometimes a pause is a good thing. Just, just a, And I know um, I've spoken to a number of artists and they always speak about holding the intention, that, that they hold this intention and they allow the work to emerge out of that rather than having a preconceived plan, I'm going to do this or that. You, you begin with this intention and you hold it and something emerges out of it. 
I think it's very similar with writers. You know, a writer maybe holds the, the book or holds it, and then at some point the the, the writing starts to emerge, almost as if it, it, it isn't myself who's doing the writing, but something else is writing through me. So I think it's always valuable to, to try to have this creative suspension, not doing nothing, but being very active in a sense, but suspending at the same time, holding the two together. Right. Well, this uh, brings me to a time when uh, I was invited to Los Alamos to participate in a uh, David Baum um, type dialogue. And um, it was a very beautiful experience. So would you speak about your, um, your work with David Baum and what you received and developed from that? Yes, uh, well, uh, I, I was at a period in my life and uh, where I was getting rather bored with, with you know, doing theoretical physics and, you know, I, more or less the problems that I tackled, I sort of said, okay, I know how to do that. It's no longer interesting, you know. I, what's the question behind the question was always on my mind. What's the question behind the question? So I wrote around to people, say, who's doing the most exciting work? And they said, oh, it's a mathematician called Roger Penrose, who's in London. Mm -hmm. And so I went and spent a year with Penrose. But during that, you know, first couple of months, I went across to the physics department and looked in the graduate room, and there was a man talking to a student, and the student was talking about the absolute and said, I don't believe in the absolute. There are no absolutes. Mm -hmm. And this man said to him, is that an absolute statement? <laughs> I thought, wow, I've got to talk to him. So I, I went up to him and said, can I come and talk to you? And he said, yes. And my name's David Baum. So we met twice a week. And after a few weeks, we were talking about physics. I phoned him up and said, no, I thought we were talking about physics, but we're not. We're mm -hmm. talking about the nature of consciousness. Mm. He said, come and see me tomorrow. So so that, then our discussions continued, and I would meet with him every year for about a month, and we worked on a book together and then started a second book. So I was, you know, it was, it was an exciting time and to be exposed to someone like that. And, uh, you know, his and his views on, on dialogue, I think, were interesting. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes. The, the Jones were doubt. Well, I think part of the thing was he, he was concerned about what he saw as the fragmentation in human society. For example, he saw that knowledge was being fragmented, you know, there's science was divided up, there's theoretical physics and solid-state physics, and there's lots of subgroups, and they don't, people didn't talk to each other in these subgroups. And he saw it generally pervasive through society that there was a high degree of fragmentation. And his own view was wholeness, and in fact he expressed that in the book, wholeness and the implicit order. Uh, so how, how, and also saw that uh, his other concern was with language, uh, and he thought language was was a key thing because um, our, the language when we speak, uh, and we're using English for example as we're doing now, mm -hmm. there are a whole set of assumptions within that language about space and time and causality, and there's also what Bohm referred to as as a level of pollution that you know words have changed their values. You know, this famous example of, you know, people working in the Pentagon uh, during the Cold War yeah. uh, and contemplating, you know, dropping a hydrogen bomb and, 
you know, the, the mass extinctions there would be, but nobody ever talked about deaths or anything like that. They used euphemisms, and those euphemisms allow people to, to do, think about the most terrible things. So he saw that language was being polluted too, and wondered, you know, how can we change it? And devised the idea of dialogue, and in a sense, you know, he used to, he did have meetings with Native Americans and had that notion that way back in our history, People would sit, would hunt together groups of 30 or 40 people and would sit around the fire at night and just talk and everything just came up and was discussed and that maybe a dialogue could be like that. People would meet uh, over extended periods and uh, just talk together without any goal, without any aim, without any particular topic and without a leader. And his notion was that each of us have six non-negotiable positions. For example... Uh, you know, Mr. A may believe uh, that, that abortion is wrong under any circumstances, and Miss B may believe that a woman has a right to choose. And if these two people meet, they have a, they can either get into a very hard argument, which could lead to splitting up of their relationship, or they could agree we're never going to talk about that. But Bomb's idea was that in the dialogue, when that comes up, there will always be people that take intermediate positions. They're not. You know, they're not strongly on one side or the other. And they can act to slow down what's going on. And in this way, a person may begin to see that what they feel with the fixed position is, in fact, something structured, not mm -hmm. just in thought, mm -hmm. but yes. in the body itself. So that, that, that when somebody mentions the word abortion, there would be a bodily reaction, an action inside the body. The heart may beat faster, the one may breathe quicker, uh, begin to squat, feel angry or feel fear or feel hostility. And the uh, idea was that in the dialogue group, you could begin to understand the structure of how that was taking place within you. So you were not, you're not bound to react anymore. You, 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 you can suspend that reaction. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of, again, a sort of creative suspension. So within the dialogue, the, as you would say, you know, and people meet for the first few weeks, they're very polite. And then eventually something happens and somebody gets a little bit angry mm -hmm. and then it's starting to work and people can begin to, to sense their reactions and see how they're structured inside themselves. Yes. That, that it's not just thought, but it's the whole, it's, it goes through the whole body. And in this way, the group as a whole can begin to change. And also he hoped that they could, in a way, um, clear up, help to clear up what he called the pollution in language. So. That was, and I would like to really stress that the yes. David Bohm, it was an experiment. It was an experiment in dialogue. Yes. And now dialogue is, that term dialogue or Bohmian dialogue is used in many different ways. And in some cases, there's a formula to it and a whole set of rules. And I think that was not what Bohm intended. He intended it as an experiment for people to try to see what would have happen in a group that would meet on a con continuing basis with goodwill and good intentions, and that maybe that could bring about some sort of wholeness in society, some healing of the fragmentation. David, how could we have a global shared meaning without basing it on religion, or rigidity. Uh, yes, okay. How could we have a, a shared meaning? Um, 
I, uh, that's a difficult question. Uh, it's hard to think of an immediate answer. Okay. I think I think there are some things people share. Maybe, for example, the the experience of, of the natural world of, of of being in nature, of of how that can affect you and and how it can change you. How you could maybe share. Uh, people can share a sense. I think that's one thing people can share is that sense of the natural world. It's a gift. It's not there to be exploited, although it has been exploited in the past. It's something we all would like to preserve. There's a very interesting conference that was held several years ago in Oxford, and it was a conference of atheists and agnostics. And the question is, they were asked was, is there anything sacred? If you don't believe in a God, is there anything sacred? Uh And a book came out of that called Is Nothing Sacred? And one by one, these atheists and agnostics had to acknowledge there was something that they felt was sacred, something that was inviolable, something which should be preserved at all costs. It could be the night sky, it could be a giant redwood, it could be the oldest human fossil that was found, the oldest human fossil. But it, but in each case, there was something a person felt was was was, was sacred in a sense, uh, should should be preserved at all costs. And I think people would feel that about the natural world, and that is something we could. If we began that way and say, well, what is, what is, what is sacred to us? What is, what is so important to, to, to each of us? Mm-hmm. Maybe we could begin to share something at that level. Mm-hmm. What is sacred to you, David Pete? Oh, um, I, I, I think, uh, I think because you know, I, I'm, I'm living in Tuscany. I'm living in a medieval village which is on the top of the hill, and I'm surrounded by nature. So I think uh, that, that, that is something significant to me. The, the, and it was, when I, I can, as a child, I remember as a child, I used to like to get soil, dirt under my fingernails. Mm. I liked to go out in the garden and come back and see all my fingernails were black, which of course really annoyed and upset my mother. Mm-hmm. But it was the idea of, of getting into the soil yes. and, and the grass. Uh, that was always important to me as a child, the, the sense of being connected to the earth. So, And I think that's, that's still there, is that, that sense of the connection to the earth. And, you know, I have a pet dog, <laughs> an English setter, and take him out for a walk, and, mm-hmm. and that, makes, that makes me feel very good, yeah. So I think that would be a starting point, mm-hmm. is the natural world. And I think another starting point is the enthusiasm of, you know, I have grandchildren, the, the enthusiasm of, 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 of children, you know, the, the look in their eyes, you know, the, the glow from them, their excitement and their thrill, and their, their happiness, just seeing them playing. So those are those important things. So um, it's so beautiful to see how all these children, all the children come in loving it. So I'm going to ask you if you could speak about love. Love? Oh, yes, that's a a very difficult one because it means so many different things to so many different people. You know, I, 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 you know, I, I have a siesta in the afternoon, and, and the dog lies on the bed beside me, and he's just looking at me, just gazing up at me. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and occasionally wagging his tail. And I would say, yes, he, he feels love. It's a sort of devotion. It's a happiness to be with someone. It's a feeling of warmth. And uh, something that I would definitely say I would have for my grandchildren, yeah. That, uh, yeah. To, to feel that their happiness is important and their growth is important and their development is important. Also, to give them the space in which to grow. I mean, not to feel, you know, it, it, it's great to think you want something good for them in their life, but it has to be their choice. It has to be something that they want to do. And, you know, one, uh, one child is, is now 13 and made this important decision several months ago, he's been going to dancing lessons twice a week, made the important decision that that's what he wanted to do. And so it's jumped from two dancing lessons a week to 15 hours of dance a week. So he gets up at 6.30 in the morning to get the bus into Siena, and he gets home at 9 at night. He's just working so hard to go to school and to do his dance. But when you see him dance, uh, you just see the incredible happiness and the joy as he talked about feeling this thing in his body that he can, as he moves, it just all opens out. So it's beautiful to see that, to see somebody doing something that they really want to do, mm -hmm. really feel fulfilled by it. And then you think about so many other people are just doing things because they need the money, they need to pay the rent, they uh, they, they need to buy a new car because the old ones and. And, and maybe they're not doing things that make them happy. And that's a pretty sad thing to, if you're given the choice to say, you know, I'd rather do something that is fulfilling than doing something that brings me a lot of money. Because yes. I don't know what the use of a lot of money is, to be frank. You know, I've never had very much. <laughs> but at least I've always been able to do what I want to do. Well, that's an interesting, uh, an interesting thing to be able to do what you want to do without having a lot of money. That could go a long way. But I'd like to jump to your latest book, A Flickering Reality, Cinema and the Nature of Reality. Could you speak to us about that? Yes, well, I think I probably had its origins when I was a little boy and, uh, my parents would talk about moving pictures, would use that term, moving pictures. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had, uh, you know, a few reproductions on on, on our wall, you know, framed. And, and I'd look at them and I imagine what moving pictures was would be that you'd look at this, this picture uh, and the figures in it would start to move. So maybe going to the moving pictures would be like you go into a room where there's a lot of paintings on the room and um, they'd all begin to move. Uh, and and the, 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 the river would flow and the, the people would move around. And mm -hmm. the, so then, finally, I was taken to this big you know, room uh, where we had nice chairs and there was a white screen and all the lights went off and suddenly the film was projected and I just screamed and screamed had to be taken out. I was so frightened of it. <laughs> um, but, then, <laughs> but then I went another time and then I, I just, just wanted to go. I just loved that business of being in the dark and and seeing all those images and it was like like having a dream it's dreaming in the dark and so i i, I became fascinated by films and it, i loved films and there were these repertory houses when i lived in ottawa where you could see two films a night maybe fellini film antonioni uh -huh. and, you know uh, so and then um i began to see 
in a sense that um, these films, some of these films were, were explore, exploring the nature of reality. I mean, in particular, there've been recently there've been films like, well, not that recently, but films like Waking Life uh, and A Scanner Darkly, in which mm-hmm. what they've done is they've taken actors, filmed the actors, and animated over the actors. And that gives you a sense that um, there's a reality beyond the surface reality we all see, you know, the realities of chairs and tables. There's something beyond that. And it's, you know, Vanilla Sky, The Truman Show. So I began to, to write about that, this notion that uh, beyond the surface of reality maybe is something deeper, which was the same thing David Baum talked about. That, mm-hmm. that this world we see around us, he called that the explicate order, and beyond that lay something much deeper that he called the implicate order, which was a constantly flowing movement of unfolding and enfolding. And I began to see that that was expressed in films and then, you know, other things were expressed, such as, you know, from Jungian psychology, the idea of the persona, the shadow, projection, uh, synchronicity. So uh, the book discusses, essentially discusses all those, those ways in which our sense of reality changed over the last couple of generations and how you can experience it uh, by by going to a film. And often uh, some of the, mo- the most interesting experiences are when you are put in the same position as the protagonist in the film Beautiful Mind, which is about the mathematician John yeah. Nash. Yeah. John Nash meets several people at the start of the film. One of them is his roommate who's going to share the room with him and uh, talks to the roommate it's only later on in the film you realize that this roommate is part of his delusional nature. It doesn't really exist. It, it's, a, it's an illusion. And, and so for a time, we are taken into John Nash's world. We see all this around us and assume it's, it's real. And another film recently was Shutter Island, in which an agent is sent to yeah. an island of, uh, where there's a, a place for the criminally insane. Yes. And he's going to investigate something. And later on in the film, you begin to see that this world around him is beginning to fracture. It doesn't make sense. And then eventually we realize that he is, in fact, an inmate in this place and, and he's acting out his delusions. So there are quite a few films in which we, we're put in the position of the protagonist that the world around us looks solid and then it begins to dissolve. But of course, that is what has been said, you know, for, for centuries by other philosophies. In India, it was Maya, the illusion. Mm-hmm. You know, from ancient China, the sage has a dream that he is a butterfly. And when he wakes, he wonders, ah, what, did I dream I was a butterfly or is a butterfly dreaming of the sage? Yes. You know, I, am I part of somebody else's dream? So there, and then in Plato, there's the prisoners in the cave who are chained, and all they see is a sh- flickering shadows on the on the wall. They never see the reality behind behind them. So I think films are a very good way of experiencing that sense that the world we live in is maybe only a surface, and there's something much deeper behind it, which is also the sort of thing that the philosophers have talked about, and and the physicist David Bohm discussed. So, so that that's the basis of the book, and it was a great joy to write. I was doing something I enjoyed. You know? Exactly, exactly. You um, you reminded me when you were speaking about that. Uh, I had a relationship with Timothy Leary when he was in oh. prison, and uh, before and after he was in prison. But when he was in prison, and uh, a relative of Herman Hesse. 
brought him a small painting by Hermann Hesse. And uh, it was a painting of a, a tree and the lake and the sky. And he said, Timothy said, you could escape from prison through that, that watercolor of Hermann Hesse. So it bring- oh, that's a, be- a beautiful story. It's a beautiful- I could imagine that would be true, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, it goes well with what you were saying about uh, films and the nature of reality, I think. Yeah. And we can also, also escape sometimes from, from, with novels. We can just go into a different world. Yes, yes. Well, um, tell us, David Pete, about your uh, thoughts on alchemy and uh, being a sort of a modern alchemist. Um, yes, I, I did become interested in alchemy, and um, the thing that struck me is how that thread... Well, oh, well, there's several things to say. That, that If you go back to, to um, Kepler and Flood, the, these two great thinkers mm-hmm. who were both interested in alchemy, uh, and also Isaac Newton, you know, spent. Now, it's interesting that Newton uh, didn't want to publish his Principia uh, until he finished his work on alchemy. And in his work on alchemy, he, he knew that you could break down chemical compounds into their elements. Wow. But he also th- thought the elements could be in turn broken down into something more primitive, which he called the one Catholic matter, or the one universal matter. Yeah. And that was his aim to, to try to do this and to combine that with his work on the laws of motion. But in fact, he was pressured into publishing, and uh, conveniently, you know, most accounts of, particularly in Victorian times, most accounts of Newton completely ignored his interest in alchemy. But there are really two approaches in alchemy. You could say one is the hermetic or magical, and the other is the platonic. And, you know, somebody like Carl Jung was interested in alchemy, but he, he was more interested in the, in the platonic and the set of rules and the sense that the alchemist is, what the alchemist is doing is seeking to transform themselves uh, through this, these workings, uh, through the four stages, you know, the, from, from the degredo stage through to the sun and through the mystical marriage and on. But... Uh, they think the alchemists themselves did believe that they were also affecting the material world or bringing a change in the world. And I think that's part of it has been forgotten, that it was a two-way process. Mm. And what has interested me is the way that um, artists... Well, if you go back into the early Middle Ages, uh, the miner, the artisan, the metal worker, and the alchemist all felt they were midwives to nature. That was a phrase that was used. They were midwives to nature. They were helping nature... Achieve perfection, and if you see that in art, you see Dura has a self-portrait, yes. and he portrays himself as Christ. Now, was that blasphemous? No, because he felt that the artist was in the same position as, as Christ, the Redeemer, who were helping nature. And in another of his uh, one of his etchings is called Melancholia One, which is the first stage of the alchemical working. And they see this progressing through. You see um, Marcel Duchamp mm-hmm. painted a, a moustache on the Mona Lisa. Yes. And I think people would take that as a joke. But in fact, it's really an ex- it can be read as an alchemical expression of androgyny. In, in part of the alchemical working, the male and the female unite. So there you have a woman with 
with a, with a man's moustache on. So it's either a joke or it's an expression of androgyny. And his great glass also is, is the notion that, that of something being projected from the earth into, into, into heaven with two sections of the glass. Jackson Pollock did a number of paintings called uh, Alchemy. So I think in, and there's a contemporary artist in England, Anish Kapoor, who firmly believes that in a, a very successful work of art, the actual matter is transformed, is an alchemical change in the matter. So the idea is really that it's not just a one-way process, as Jung thought, that by working you know, with the alchemical vessel, you're changing yourself. That's true, but also there's a change in the outer world. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a two-way, alchemy is a two-way process. And I think another aspect of alchemy that has been expressed is the idea of the therapeutic hour. It's like, it, it's, a, it's a safe hour, it's a safe container, and it's an alchemical vessel. Mm -hmm. And there's this notion in, in cosmology that when the, at the Big Bang, when the particles created, all the forces of nature were unified, they were the same, all the masses of the particles were the same. Then gradually they began to, the symmetries began to break. And these have been call, called, you know, ac accidents. These were sort of <laughs> accidental breakings. And some therapists have said the same thing happens as a person develops from childhood. There are a series of accidents, frozen accidents that happen, a trauma, whatever. And that in the alchemical vessel of the therapeutic hour, the temperature can raise and these accidents can be thawed out. So the idea would be that it's, the therapist really isn't doing anything. It's not really doing very much or she's not doing very much. What they're doing is creating a very safe alchemical vessel in which the temperature can rise and some transformation can take place. And I would like to add that I see Pari, where I am now, where we have the Pari Center, as being very similar to an alchemical vessel. It's, 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 a, yes. it's, a, it's on a hill, and it's, it's, it's two, the, the inner road that circles around and an outer road that circles around. And while I've been living here, there have been several of the older people who had Alzheimer's disease, and, you know, they were confused, but they never wandered out of the village. The village always contained them. And we had the sense now that when we have meetings here, the, the, the village is a container, and it allows an alchemical vessel and it allows something new to emerge that yeah. when you go to a conference each person goes and they've prepared a paper and they've got a set of ideas and they want to get their ideas across or maybe argue with someone else <laughs> but in Pari our idea is is we will maybe come with those ideas but something new will be born mm -hmm. something new will be generated will be an alchemical process that allows something new to emerge that didn't exist before so I, I, so I think the alchemy, both as a metaphor and as something very real, is important. Thank you for speaking about that. Maybe you would be willing to speak about you um, had some time with uh, Native American Blackfoot peoples and uh, specifically about your ideas on the clown or the trickster who makes an appearance in sacred and serious ceremonies. Yes, that's, that's a very interesting point. Uh, and, um, and also uh, the whole business of comedy that, that uh, I mean, that we, you know, in our culture, we tend to think of the clown as someone who's supposed to be funny and has a red nose and makes us laugh. But the clown also has the other side. It can, the clown can... Uh, 
in, in, in certain sacred ceremonies, the clown at the sacred point that the clown the clown can mock, can make fun of of what's going on, and and it it's it, it, it's a it, it, it is an important role, the trickster, the person who questions what's going on, who causes us to to question the world around us. And sometimes it's a bit pain. It's, you know, if, if I have a fixed position and someone's going to challenge it, it may be quite painful for me to have to face that. Uh -huh. And so that is what the clown can do. He can turn from laughter into something quite painful and back to laughter again. I could give you an example of uh, a clown, but mm -hmm. not from a Native American tradition, but from, you know, <laughs> a European tradition. And that was a, an actor called Jack Claff. And at the, um, at the memorial meeting for David Bohm, which is held mm -hmm. in Edinburgh, mm -hmm. Jack Claff took on the role of, of playing a character. And this character was called Sir Arthur Singleford Guinness, and he had the Nobel Prize for reductionism. So he gives his Nobel Prize speech, and at first it's very, very funny. He makes a lot of jokes. You know, he says, what's so important about holism? Who wants a lot of holes? And so it's very funny. Mm -hmm. And then, then he begins to say, well, you know, are there any barriers in, in science? You know, uh, are there areas where we shouldn't enter? You know, and one thing that we'd really like to know about is, um, is more about the human physiology and, uh, you know, how far, you know, how far we can we can deal with things and he then says well there were some very interesting experiments done in nazi germany where for example they would take twins and maybe mm -hmm. drown one of them or experiment one of them or cut them open and all this this has been documented and this is really valuable really valuable stuff because of course every any doctor would like to you know work on a conscious patient without an anesthetic and this has been done and as he's saying this, people are horrified. You know, some people walk out of the room, yeah. people stand up and say, you know, stop this, stop this, this is terrible, this is dreadful stuff. And at the end of, of his show, he then gets a custard pie and throws it in his face, and some people laugh. He does it a second time, and kept throwing custard pies at him until uh, people stopped laughing. And he said, well, an experiment's supposed to be reproducible. That one wasn't reproducible. Mm -hmm. So afterwards, people go up to him and he said, the two things you didn't realize. Number one is, up to that point, all that material was my own. Once I talked about these experiments, it was all I'd taken from scientific literature written by people recently. And the second one you didn't realize is I'm a Jew. Yeah. So, so he was... It was very much the clown starting off funny and suddenly shocking everybody mm -hmm. and causing them to question. Mm -hmm. And the question was, are there limits to science? Should there be limits? Or is anything allowed? Wow. Wow. Yeah. That, that opens, uh, that, that really opens an amazing rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, and I would like to ask you um, for a few words on... Um, Synchronicity and quantum physics. Yes, synchronicity, I did become interested in that, and it was, you know, it was an idea. Well, originally, Carl Jung um, was interested in these sort of experiments in parapsychology and stuff like that, and his, uh, he had developed a very close relationship with Wolfgang Pauli, the physicist. And, and I think Pauli was critical of, of Jung at this point and said, you know, when you're talking about parapsychology and telepathy and things like that, you, you're bringing in causality into it. You say, okay, it, it's a subtle cause, the brain's, the mind is causing something to happen, but really a synchronicity is an a-causal connection. 
it, there's no causality involved. It's also a meaningful connection because it's, there are many, many coincidences in life, but synchronicity is, is, is a coincidence that has a tremendous numinous effect and can change a person's life. So I, I think between the two of them, the physicist and the depth psychologist, really helped to develop that idea of a synchronicity that happens maybe at a certain time of life, that you're in a time of crisis, and this meaningful coincidence, this connection between the inner world and the outer world occurs and deeply moves you. And it's often said that when a person is in the grip of an archetype, they're in a certain sort of frozen time. You know, they tend to, to mm-hmm. be repetitive. You know, the, 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 the poor eternists, uh, the, the, they, they cannot grow up, they cannot take responsibility. Uh, and then they're in a sort of frozen time. And mm-hmm. a synchronicity could be something that, that it happens in Kairos when the time is right. Mm-hmm. And then it allows you then to say, I have a past, a present, and I'm moving into a future. So it, it, a synchronicity can, can free a person. And they don't happen that often. You know, they maybe only happen once or twice. Uh, you know, in, in a life, but but uh, they they can they they can be significant and they can change a person, and particularly when a person is is, is you know facing the last possibility that you know they they bet everything on, on the last throw of the cards, mm-hmm. throw of the dice, and uh, and then this thing this change happens. And another form of synchronicity could be the sort of the meeting, the encounter. You 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 meet someone, and that person opens a door for you. And it's often said that um, they open the door and you have to go, you go through the door, but they can't come with you. Uh, they, 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 you leave them behind. Mm-hmm. You know, there are famous meetings like, you know, Carl Jung meeting Sigmund Freud, yeah. which was important in, in Jung's life, but Jung went on and Freud could not follow him, uh, wasn't willing to follow him. And right. There have been meetings like that. Yes. So it, it, it can be encounters, they can be moments in time in which... Um, you have a past, a present, and a future, rather than being frozen. And they can be numerous experiences in which the inner and the outer connect. Um, so I, I think that this, they are significant, and uh, but it's too easy, I think, for people just to, uh, to say, oh, they've had a number of coincidences and call them synchronicities, you know. So after I wrote the book, I did have a lot of people tell me rather trivial things which they felt were synchronicities, but there are only a few that are, you know, really genuine, you know, deeply moving synchronicities that happen to, in a person's life. Well, David Pete, uh, I want to thank you for your generosity of time and thought for being with us today and would like to ask you what would you like to say in closing to our conversation? Oh, um, I don't know. Well, I could just say for my own life, what I always like to do is something different and something new. <laughs> and uh, so I think that I wish that for everybody, that they, they get a chance to do something, something different, something they haven't done before, that a door will open for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe listening to this or what, what happens when they stop listening and they go out, out outside and maybe something will open and something new will happen. I, I'd love to, I'd love doing new things. I mean, if somebody, you know, 
asked me to write something. No, I don't want to write about the things I've written before. Give me something challenging, something mm-hmm. I know nothing about. Mm-hmm. And then I would love to write about that. So that's what I wish for, for everyone, that something new will come into their life. Maybe a butterfly. Yeah. Very nice. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.